Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We are out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Welcome to the final bonus episode for season one of Life on the Line. We're closing out this season on a favourite subject of mine: the story of Barney Greatrex. Regular listeners of this podcast will know that Barney Greatrex fought in World War II. He was a bomb aimer for Bomber Command, the sole survivor of his Lancaster being shot down, and then he spent eight months fighting the Germans with the French resistance in occupied France in 1944. In 2013, his nephew, Charlie Mort, orchestrated an incredible family trip to France to retrace Barney's crash site, the places he went to on his journey, and meeting the relatives of those with whom he fought. 93-year-old Barney was the guest of honour in this epic tour of remembrance. I spoke to Charlie about the trip and how they went about retracing the resistance. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Charlie. Pleasure, Alex. So let's go back to your childhood. Did you spend a lot of time with Barney growing up? Yeah, so um, if I think uh, way back to small childhood, not as much. I grew up until I was six years old in, in Hunters Hill and... With mum, we used to go and see her, her mum in St Ives, where Barney and Jenny lived, but he was uh, settled in work. It was basically when I was, so still a fair way back, when I was six, we moved to the country, and not long after, Barney and Jenny, who were very close to mum, a block of land came up that was in the back of our farm, which Barney and Jenny decided to uh, buy and uh, it's been the, that's been one of the loves of their life ever since. So it was from sort of that point where I really uh, spent a lot more time with Barney, I suppose, from about six or seven. Do you remember when you first learned that Barney had fought in World War II? I probably heard about it late primary school, early high school, but I don't remember an exact time, but it was pretty vague because they never spoke about it. He never spoke about it at all. Even I can think right through high school and early adulthood, it was never spoken about. Obviously with immediate family with Jenny and they had done one or two trips, him with work, where he probably went back to places once or twice, but never spoke about it. So it was there in the background. Especially with, uh, you've got both your uncles, Barney and Anthony, as Air Force veterans, and your mother had been a nurse in the war. So it's odd that entire generation serves and then the next just hears so little about it. It's odd, but yeah. common. Yeah, I mean, uh, but I think with the veterans, everyone had a different um, experience and their own, their own personality of the way they are. My father was in the 9th Division and he was very social and went to the march every year and um, I guess he never he never even really spoke to us much about what he got up to it is a bit of a veteran thing uh, some anyone who's been in war I don't know whether that's a, I think it is pretty common maybe that you you don't necessarily talk about it too much I don't know so when did that start to change and Barney did finally start to talk about it with you directly I think it was more 
me over time and probably into my 30s and 40s maybe where my interest got a bit peaked as I got older. I'd always be going around to Barney and Jenny's and uh, sitting and having a cup of tea and, and more and more over a decade or two I started asking questions, quizzing him about it. And at some stage, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I saw the story that he had written down after the war, you know, was amazed by it then. So basically over about the last 15 or 20 years, it became a thing that I really used to question him a lot lot about it. And in the past decade or so, he's become a lot more vocal in telling a story. I think he quite enjoys it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think for me, I grilled him more and more. And then as my parents and and Barney and Jenny, as they were getting older, I got much more interested in it, culminating in asking him about uh, getting back over there at some point. So So the 2013 trip is the first real family orientated trip what's the inspiration behind that to take him over there i mean it was it was twofold there was probably a little bit of not selfish but it was a bit again my um amazement with his story grew to the point where um while he was still capable i was very keen to go over and and see i couldn't have thought of a better way to go over and see the places where he'd been than with him a few of the immediate family thought i was a bit uh bit courageous to do what i did and uh, I got sort of warned by a few not to do it, but I was determined. I mean, I was very close to him and I would be round at his place all the time mowing the lawns and catching up with him. And uh, yeah, I was determined in the end and he was very keen to go when I put it to him. Well, yeah, it's um, September, October 2013, so he's 92, 93. I can imagine the family thinking you're crazy to try and fly him around the world, but good on him for having the stamina to go and not just make the flight, but then yeah. trape around France. Yeah. Oh, he's an amazing fellow because, I mean, maybe this is why he's done so well and he's still pretty good at 97. And I think it was, um, he's a bit what I would call obsessive compulsive. And uh, I think that meant that he was always wanting to be busy. He had his routines at home and you'd turn up there. He was never inside sitting down. He was always out in the garden or doing stuff. And that's why they also loved buying Mudgy apart from that they were close to my mum. You know, that gave him something to really um, hook into, which was physical. I think he liked keeping active, kept him pretty fit and healthy. So let's get to France. Who is on the trip and who's your guide? It was myself, Barney, and my son, Angus, who at the time I think was 14. was also very interested because of my interest with Barney's story. We went in 2013. I knew that going back to French-speaking country, um, and I don't have a word of French, and Barney's probably, his French isn't as good as it was 50 or 60 years ago. We had the contact there, Christiane Gilbert, who in 1975 was Barney's interpreter as a 19-year-old, and uh, she was best friends with Claudine Sigrist, who was Gabby Mugel's daughter. Gabby was with Barney during his um, time with the resistance, and Gabby was the farmer that um, their farm was overtaken by the Germans and he hid and Barney ended up with him. So the daughter Claudine, who was an 18, 19 year old in 1975 and couldn't speak a word of English, um, met Barney back then and, and her friend who could speak good English was the interpreter and that's Christiane, still a family friend, married to an Australian and has a daughter living in Taramara in Sydney. So um, we flew over into Nice, right to where Gabby Michelle's daughter Claudine lived in the little village of 
Biot outside Nice. We flew there and we met up with her, stayed with her, and then we drove up. We picked up Christiane and we did our trip, which was incredible. So you guys sort of do the reverse of Barney's journey by starting south in La Bresse and then you head north. Yeah, we picked up Christiane in Avignon and we drove up. We stayed in Gerardmer, which is a bigger town than um, La Bresse. And there were various things arranged. We, we had a uh, sort of a civic meeting with the mayor and TV was there. They interviewed Barney, a civic reception which was wonderful. And La Bresse is a beautiful town and it's just beautiful there up in the mountains. It's up in the ski snow country. Ski field's not far away and beautiful part of the trip. Where um, Claudine's dad, Gabby Mugel's farm was, you could pretty much look out of La Bresse up the hill and see, just about see it, and the Picant Pierre, which is a lot higher, but it's um, just a big, distinct valley, La Bresse in the middle and, and, and the Picant Pierre up up above and it is where Barney hid and uh, and fought with the resistance and there was a lot of atrocities around there. There's a monument at the Picant Pierre, the big rock where there's all the names of the people that there, there was a period there in October 44 where the Germans, I think they were pretty much getting sick of the resistance in that area and um, it was causing them a lot of problems and they um, they weren't able to stop it, but what they did was, in frustration, they pretty much committed a lot of war crimes. They executed a lot of people and there was a lot of bad things happened. But the local farming stock there were pretty tough, I think, and they um, that's why they sort of caused a lot of problems for the Germans. But so Barney's, one of the interesting things of Barney's time up there and the Pecan Pierre is that it was, because it was so high, They um, it was where they would drop a lot of supplies. The Allies would fly in at one or two in the morning and if they got a coded message on the BBC to say the drop would be happening, Barney and, and the others would uh, go up and set up big bonfires and um, light them and then they knew where to drop in the middle of the night. How's Barney reacting to this, being back there? Oh, he's as he always is, he's pretty pragmatic and pretty understated and um, he was, um, I think, just happy to be back, be back there. And to um, go back, as he, I guess, realised maybe the last time, obviously, um, go back to the places he'd been, which is so close to his heart. He loved the whole experience. When I think about um, La Bresse too and the, and the civic reception we had, one of the really interesting connections we got by a stroke of luck was the, it was actually, they had a, um, a bit of an interview with Barney on the, on the local French TV station, Christiane, the following morning after it had been on the news on the local TV, she um, came down to breakfast and said that she just had a phone call from two old guys in their 80s, late 80s, early 90s, that had seen the TV story and knew Barney through their cousin, a fellow by the Mackey name of Babert, who was with these two younger guys. They were a farming family from up near Epinal, I think, and they... What the Germans were doing were, if there were any males over the age of about um, 15 or 16, they would um, round them up and um, basically send them off to the Eastern Front to fight for the Germans. And so a lot of men were, were going into hiding. And Babea, the cousin of these two that saw the TV show, he was on the farm and in his late 20s, early 30s, I think, and he, he got wind of the Germans coming and disappeared. The Germans came out after him and, and because he wasn't there, they took one of these 
boys who were 15 and 13 at the time in 1944, took him away, locked him up, tortured him, tried to get information out of him. I think their names were Max and Lucien from memory. We went out and met them and uh, it was very emotional actually because they, a bit like Barney not talking about it, they really didn't talk about this much because it was pretty traumatic for them, I think, in 1944, what happened. But um, yeah, fortunately they lived to tell the tale and they were, they were very emotional and pleased to um, meet Barney. It would have meant a lot to Barney as well because Babert yeah. was such a significant character in Barney's story, mm. sort of leader of the local cell. and Yeah. Well, their, their cousin had hidden and sort of run missions, I suppose, and carried on various reconnaissance or whatever activities with Barney. Babert and Barney were together with a bit of a hodgepodge band of German deserters and local Mackie that were trying to avoid capture at the time. So, But Babert did what needed to be done. One time their groups infiltrated almost yeah. by a spy and Barney's amazed when Babert just shoots him dead and gets mm. Barney to bury the body. I mean, it's an amazing connection to still have 70-ish years later. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that side of things it was pretty common. I mean, a lot of French, particularly city French, but a lot of French were, I guess, intimidated by the Germans into changing sides basically and I don't know the politics too well but there was Yavishi of German sympathizers side and and then the resistance which I think were mostly sort of the country people that were um, not going over. So there was often people who were willing to pass on information to the Germans and so on they had they had a few experiences of that. So you keep making your way north and get to the crash site. Where is the crash site and what was that experience like of being back there with Barney? There's an historical society we linked up with up there and um, there was actually an American lady and, and a couple of French fellows. She used to be in the White House and she, she was married to a French guy and lived there and was very passionate about the, um, the history and the, um, the war cemeteries because up there, not far from Lagarde, is where all his crewmates are buried in the Chiloy War Cemetery. Yeah, so we, we went out to... Um, Lagarde, which is a very small village. We went out to the, the um, crash site, which is just out, you know, it's maybe a K outside the village, not much more or less. Had a look around there, saw the lay of the land. I think a lot of it's very similar to what it was like. Running through that country, there's, there's a lock which runs through from Lagarde to the next little village, Moorcore, which is where Barney ran to after the plane crashed. And there's just a lot of gently sloping farm fields with um, stands of forest in amongst it. Actually, one thing that I do remember, which relates to that particular part of his story, I always thought, and probably until about 15 years ago, I, I thought that Barney actually crashed in Germany proper until I looked into the story, because he always said he crashed behind the German border. And then when, when we got to Lagarde and I realised that actually the Germans, because they always probably like still consider that Alsace region part of Germany. And so I think um, when they did the Blitzkrieg and they immediately set up a new border and I, I, whether they figured if they ever retreated back, they thought, well, this is where we're going to keep our border because when Barney crashed and then ran that night through the forest, he came to rows of barbed wire and with sentry posts which was literally the um, the new German border, which was deserted because by this stage in 44, they were right across France. So there was no one there. He ran 
not that far. I don't know how far, five or ten, five, six, seven k's from the crash site to Moorcore. And um, and then that's where he linked up with the local resistance and um, the lock keeper of the village, who was the resistance leader. He stayed there a few days and then was he was couriered from Moorcore on a bus to Nancy, where they went into a solicitor's office, I believe, which was right next to Gestapo headquarters in the main square in Nancy, which was um, thousands of German soldiers, and there was Barney. They're talking about where they're going to smuggle him to, and Barney's looking yeah. out the window, and all these uh, German soldiers just mm. goose-stepping through the courtyard. That's right. That's right. So um, it must have been surreal. Oh, I can imagine how surreal it was for Barney standing in that crash site. That photo uh, taken of him standing there is amazing. I mean, geographically speaking, the only thing different is the lack of snow that he parachuted yeah. into. Otherwise, it's still all there. It must have been a remarkable experience. Yeah, yeah. Did he give away any hint of emotion at that point? Oh, Barney's very... Um, I can hardly recall ever seeing too much emotion with Barney. He keeps it very much under wraps. Although, no, having said that, just in the garden, if he got a problem, he can flip. But that's over menial things. He's not really, doesn't really show emotion. And whether he locked that away way back when it all happened, I'm not really sure, or whether it's just the way he is. It's hard to know. I've got a feeling he may have locked it away at that point because it was such a drastic thing to come down, crash down out of the sky, survive and see all your mates perish. And, you know, you're in your early 20s. So um, I think I can sort of see how you might lock it away and um, not have emotion about it. Well, Barney is the sole survivor. He does see his mates perish. And during this trip, you get to Chuloi War Cemetery and you find the graves of his crew. Yeah, yeah. I found it very emotional, And but Barney's very pragmatic. He sort of chatted about the crew and I'm not sure whether he'd been to the actual war cemetery before. Not really sure. I, I don't think so, but... Did you find the graves yeah. of all the crew? They're all there, yep, side by side. And it's quite a touching thing when we were there because they have all the different sections. They had a, a Muslim section where all the graves were facing a different way and, and then a very large French section. It was obviously the biggest section of the cemetery, I guess. And straight after, not many people probably realised with all of that too, that they've got these big war cemeteries but by the end of the war obviously they weren't the cemetery wasn't there and there were bodies like for example Barney's crew is a good case they crashed the Germans were in control of the region and, and they came out and found the bodies the Germans considered I think these sort of bomber crews almost as um, war criminals you know because from their perspective they were having their cities decimated by them all the dehousing and the incredible yeah. raids Bomber yeah. Harris had them doing yeah so they refused to let the locals bury the crew in the local cemetery. They made them bury them outside the cemetery. This is what I've heard. I, don't, I think that's a true story. And so they were buried there until after the war and what the Allied... They formed the War Graves Commission, I believe, and then they actually literally went round and retrieved all the bodies they could find and just mapped some central war grave cemeteries around France. So they were, their bodies were moved. After that emotional... Day at the cemetery, you guys finished the trip by popping over to London and visiting the Bomber Command Memorial. And that was um, that was again another another moving experience. I wasn't aware of it either until um, I became more involved in the story. How 
Bomber Command was really, oh, I don't know if vilified's the word, but yeah, during the war and after, and I don't think even Winston Churchill liked Bomber Harris and didn't like what they were doing. Harris was relentless in his tactics. Yeah. He just wanted more and more, um, thinking he could make the Germans capitulate by destroying their spirits when the Germans had failed to do that on Britain. So why would it succeed if Britain was doing it back to the Germans? But Yeah, there's lessons in history, which um, hopefully we're not going to repeat. I can't imagine what a profound experience that trip would have been for Barney. And like you say, he keeps his cards close to his chest. But you did document the trip very thoroughly on a Facebook page for friends and family, including some fantastic photos and videos. Yeah. And what is the name of that Facebook page for listeners to look up? Oh, it's called Barney in France. It was my first foray into Facebook, I have to admit. A lot of people, including members of my own family, are very critical of of Facebook but in this particular scenario it was it was just the perfect way to go around you know with your smartphone at hand and just to log the little stories and parts of your trip so that family could see what you were doing from day to day almost by you know almost up to the minute what you were up to without you having to talk to everyone it was it was a brilliant one and that's a record that's that's there his whole original story that he recorded pretty much straight after the war is on there and all the little stories of the people we met and some of the um, things that happened around La Bresse, even some of the memorials and relating to particular little stories and atrocities that happened and points of interest, it was, um, yeah, it was good. Lots of little discoveries, like uh, I knew from a while ago the story of the doctor Barney goes to visit. Then during that trip, I learned via your Facebook page that we get to know the fate of the doctor and how he was imprisoned and eventually killed during the war by the Germans and documenting moments like, you know, you've got a... 60 90 second video of barney at the cemetery which is yeah, yeah. amazingly insightful to watch and yeah. tap into yeah that's right so let's fast forward a couple of years from that trip barney is featured prominently in a documentary on himself and 11 of his schoolmates for school and country and during the research for that doco is when you and i first get in contact and then that documentary has now led to a book about barney it's been, um, you know, I'm personally very grateful to you guys because it's um, his story, another one, all the podcasts and, and those things you're doing, it's it's a very precious thing to record these things and, and uh, remember what these all those people do at these times of war and so on. Um, it's good that you do it. I think Barney was the real kickstart inspiration for Angus Horden and I because Barney was the second veteran for that documentary we interviewed and we got a great story with the first guy and thought okay we're onto something good here and then Barney's story was the second we recorded and just of course blew us away and then we kept collecting more and more and realized we have to do more with this and then when an opportunity for a book came along we had to pick a story Barney's just there's something so special about it and then Mm. It's just led us further and further down this path. So we're, of course, feel very grateful to Barney and it's our privilege to help tell his story um, in any way that we can and be involved. And now the biography of Barney Greatrex, which is called Barney Greatrex, From Bomber Command to the French Resistance, The Stirring Story of an Australian Hero, is by Michael Veach. It's out now. And thank you, Charlie. Michael and I were constantly in touch with you about new information, photos and that kind of thing. And you were a massive help in the project. Well, it was an easy thing to want to support. For me, in the, in the, in the background of it all, as well as remembering what Barney went through, was just remembering his crew and, uh, and also the people of La Bresse and France, where he was and what they went through. To me, it's sort of a remembrance of that as much as it is of Barney in particular. You got to read a proof copy of the book on behalf of the family and you took the proof copy and read it to now 97-year-old Barney. How did he react to it? He loved it. 
I think, you know, at 97, at this stage of his life, it just brought back memories and um, it was, it, he loved it. Yeah, it was really good. Because like you say, Barney can be very pragmatic and I see him most get excited when Kate comes out or uh, when, you know, there's a, his story is getting, you know, he's really enjoyed getting the attention for his story in a deserving, rightfully so way. A couple of times we've taken him to school assemblies and he sees all the interest and adoration from a crowd that got him excited. I remember on Remembrance Day... 2011, 11, 11, 11, we took Barney to his old school, Knox, and he spoke to an assembly of some of the younger boys. He was loving it. And then afterwards, he's chatting with some of the senior boys from that group and we're taking a photo and he just cracks a smile and says, make sure you get this in the yearbook. Yeah. The little moments shine through. And when one of those times you were reading the proof copy, you filmed a couple of minutes of you reading it to him and just had the camera on Barney and you emailed it. And I was so Glad you did, because seeing a raw emotional reaction from Barney, he was just so yeah. animated by yeah. hearing you read back to him and then Barney did this and then Collins did that. It was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Oh, no, he loved it. He just soaked it in. So um, I loved being – it was a real privilege to be able to do what I've done with Barney going back to France and just over the years being able to um, absorb the story with him and, and relate it back to him. And so the book's very precious for that. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And I think the 2013 trip is an integral part of his story. It's um, brought things full circle in a way, and we get to close out and celebrate that with the book and the Legion of Honor last year. And it's just fantastic to see this celebration in the latter stages of a wonderful life. So it's been a privilege for myself to get to know Barney these past many years and to help tell his story. And thank you, Charlie, for helping us tell the story. And thanks for your time today. Yeah. It's a pleasure and thanks for everything you guys have done. We really appreciate it as a family. That was my conversation with Charlie Mort about his uncle, Barney Greatrex. Barney Greatrex by Michael Veach, based on research by Alex Lloyd and Angus Horden, is out now where all good books are sold. You can look up more information about it on our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. A shameless plug, it's the perfect Christmas present. You can also learn more about the documentary starring Barney at forschoolandcountry.com. This is our last episode of Season 1 of Life on the Line, but we'll be back in the first half of next year. Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast in your podcast app to know when we're back. Also, keep in touch on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLPod. And write to us by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on season two of the podcast. Our artwork is by the talented Mark Thacker at Big Cat Design. Our music is by Dan Van Werkhoven, composer and author extraordinaire at Mark IV Multimedia. That's a four in Roman numerals. Dan was also our lead composer on For School and Country. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Of that team, particular thanks go to Angus Horden and Thomas Kay for making this season possible. Thanks also go to Ashley Barton and Kate Sherrington for advice and support. I'm Alex Lloyd, and it's been a pleasure having you with us for season one of Life on the Line. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs> <laughs>